Dr. Dr. Renahan was um, showing us that some sort of distinction between different types of law is clear in 1 Corinthians 7. But also, before you get out of the garden, the Bible, looking back on the garden, makes the same distinctions. So if you get the garden wrong, you'll get chapter 19 and the biblical teaching on the law of God wrong. But if you get the garden right, you have a better chance of getting the distinction subsequent to the creation account. Okay, so if you're here and you didn't hear the first part of this lecture, sorry. Um, this is part two of a presenting the views uh, on the denial of the threefold division of the law by some New Covenant theology adherents and some progressive covenantal adherents and one Sydney Anglican presenting their denial of it, not only that they denied the threefold division of the law, but why, not all the whys, just some of the whys. And now I want to give a brief critique with all of our stomachs, bellies, tummies, ladies have tummies, men have bellies, full with fried food and sweets. And it's 8.03. I'm going to give a brief critique of this denial and then a biblical justification for the threefold division of the law. I didn't, I knew he was going to do a lecture on um, moral positive. I didn't know, I don't think, you were going to go to that text in 1 Corinthians, but thank you. That'll help me. And maybe we'll be able to go to bed earlier because of that. So recall the citations from the earlier lecture today. I cited quotations. Um, it's obvious from those that New Covenant theology and progressive covenantalism, as far as I've read, categorically to a man denies the doctrine of the three threefold division of the law. I believe these denials reflect at times, not always, at least in part, a biblicist mentality. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Demanding things of texts that cannot be produced, but, as I hope to show, are not necessary to produce in order to prove a doctrine. Um, have you seen the, ver the T-shirt chapter and verse? I'm, I'm saying, no, it's not that simple, because a, a Jehovah's Witness can wear that, okay? But simply them pointing to a chapter and verse and an Orthodox Trinitarian Christian pointing to the same verse you got to, got to do more than that, right? You got to use words in the, in the word, not in the word, to explain the word. So, one example of a biblicist mentality by at least one New Covenant theology author author can be found in these words. It's by Blake White. New Testament, uh, New Covenant theology strives to limit itself to using the language of the Bible. If he was, if I could have coffee with him, um, I would ask him what he meant by that. And if he just says, "Well," When we can use Bible terms, we use them, but we realize sometimes we can't, we have to use more than just Bible terms. Can I do it? Who wrote Hebrews? Paul. <laughs> I think Mike Renahan, I saw Mike Renahan, his brother, Jay. Mike was in a wheelchair. We were all in an auditorium like this. It was a Q&A session. He had a microphone and feedback came back and everybody's ears are going and he went 
who wrote Hebrews. And I, I think somebody said Paul, but afterwards I said, that was, that was pretty quick, he said, I saw Sproul do that one time. <laughs> so unlike Dr. Renhan, I'll speak well of the venerable dead. You were dissing on Sp poor Sproul, I mean. Now here, here's the thing, now listen, let's go back, go back here. Don't look behind that curtain, look over here. New, Test, New Covenant theology strives to limit itself to using the language of the Bible, okay? Unquote. I said, that's kind of a biblicist mentality. Here's the irony. I read his book. Guess what's in it? Words not in the Bible. A lot of them. Okay? So I think I, guys like this, do, like I said, they don't have horns and a tail and a cape, and they don't fly around and scare little kids. Where are they? awake. I just don't think sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, all of us have been and will be in the future, don't think through the entailments of some of the things that we say, especially when we may want to make a big point about something we think is important. We sometimes overstate our case. I stopped doing this about 50 years ago, but you guys still do it. Overstating your case, rhetorical punch that doesn't pay out literally and, you know, explicitly. I think that's probably what happens. Here's John Riesinger. He informs us the Ten Commandments are never once called the moral law by any writer of Scripture. My response to that is, wow. <laughs> Similarly, sorry, Gary D. Long says, it should be noted that the word moral does not occur in the original languages of the Bible. Remember I was saying, there's kind of some biblicism going on here, but they're not consistent. It should be noted that the word moral does not occur in the original languages of the Bible. Therefore, it is better not to refer to God's law as the moral law of God. Unquote. Gary Long rejects the term moral because it is not in the Bible, yet he asserts elsewhere that biblical law might be rightly explained under two distinctive categories, the absolute law of God and the covenantal law of God, unquote. Um, my footnote, I know what it says, and I probably shouldn't tell you what it says. It appears to me that Dr. Long wanted his cake and to eat it too, right? You know what that figure of speech means. So simply put, consistent biblicism, which neither New Covenant theology nor progressive covenantalism is, but consistent biblicism rejects doctrinal formulations which use words not explicitly found in the Bible. If one uses words not used, utilized by the Bible in the formulation of a given doctrine, threefold division, the consistent biblicist rejects that doctrine simply because it does not use Bible words. Uh, this is a word concept fallacy. So I'm going to skip a lot of material and I better put my glasses on to make sure I skip the right material. Um, the doctrine of the threefold division of the law is formulated based on observations from the text of Scripture, which are then put into theological shorthand or doctrinal, doctrinal formulations for sake of convenience. We've seen this time and time and again. Chapter 4 in the Confession of Creation. By the way, just read that and you go, oh, whatever these guys thought the Bible taught... They thought there was a distinction by the time you get to Genesis, the end of Gen the middle of Genesis 2, between something internal 
uh, principle from which Adam's going to interpret reality, the law written on the heart, and something external or plus law added to that, Genesis 2.17, the prohibition. So that was an observation made just from the text. And then other observations you can make in Genesis 3 and then Genesis 4. Remember some of the observations we made about Genesis 4. Sacrifices are being offered, and one of them was being accepted. And, and if you look at your marginal note, at least in the New King James, New American Standard Version of, is it Genesis 4.11? At the end of days, they offered up those sacrifices. That's an interesting little you ever read Jonathan Edwards and others, they say at the end of how many days? Guess what they're going to say in light of the seven days of creation? At the end of seven days, or at the end of a period of time less than seven days to get them to the seventh day. That's when they offered sacrifices. That's interesting, if true, I think it is, or at least it's highly plausible. You can keep going. Cain was a murderer from the beginning. Do you believe that he was? Do you read in Genesis 4, Cain is a murderer from the beginning? No, you read that in 1 John 3 or wherever it is. And then you come back with Bible lenses and you go, ah, this is the murderer from the beginning. There was no prohibition for murder, at least as far as we read in the narrative, right? There's, go there's more going on in what's being narrated What's being narrated, there's more going on than the narration itself contains. Uh, the way I put it to students is, God acts, God raises up a penman, he records the acts, he narrates what transpired, but the acts that he's talking about, writing about, narrating, are pregnant with meaning, a meaning that's often held in the mind of God and not revealed to us through another scripture writer, sometimes for hundreds and even thousands of years. And then subsequent revelation makes explicit what's implicit in antecedent revelation. So I think that's what's happening with the, with the formulation of this kind of a doctrine, the threefold division of the law. Just observations are being made about various kinds of laws and distinctions and assumptions and things of that nature, and they're putting the whole thing uh, together. This is how the doctrine of the threefold division of the law uh, was formulated. The Bible is examined canonically as a whole. If you look at the confession, any chapter, at the proof texts, you'll see that a canonical consultation, the 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 proof texts were selected from the entire symphony of the scriptural revelation, right? And not even in canonical order either. You'll get doctrine of the word stuff from all over the canon. you get of God and of the Holy Trinity and the, uh, the scripture references are all over the canon. What are they doing? Systematic theology in one sense, you know? So it was, an, it was a canonical consultation the entirety of Scripture was called into a meeting of minds over the long history of the church in terms of this threefold division of the law. By the way, I read in uh, somebody, it was not somebody in favor of the doctrine. They said it goes all the way back to origin. Usually people want to say, no, it goes all the way back to Aquinas, which automatically makes it horrible. 
Because anything that has a terrible beginning is a horrible thing. Like if you were conceived outside of wedlock, you're a horrible thing. What's that fallacy called? Genetic fallacy? Um, it doesn't matter who first articulated it in its three-form three division, three-fold division. It, what really matters is, does the doctrine as stated in our confession accurately reflect the canonical teaching of the, teaching of the canonical scriptures? And I think the answer is yes. Could, it, could somebody else's doctrinal statement accurately reflect the teaching of scripture on the threefold division of the law by using three different terms to describe it? Of course, as long as the concepts embodied in our terms are the same concepts infused into their terms. It's not the words moral, ceremonial, and civil. It's what they signify. Uh, that's why I'm getting all excited. Plus, I'm trying to go fast, and I'm not doing very well. So, as they did this, um, laws that predated and transcended Israel as God's old covenant nation were tagged as moral. Okay, so they saw laws that predated ancient Israel as God's covenant nation, and they saw those same laws transcending Israel, and they, called, they said, those are binding, those are permanent, those are moral, those are natural, written on the law of heart, a law, uh, written on the heart, and narratives often just assume these things without explicit imperatives. People's activities are either applauded or frowned upon without explicit imperatives or prohibitions. They're just assumed. Those kind of things are moral. They're perpetually binding all, all men because based on creation, all men are created in the image of God even though fallen. They're based on the nature of God and the fact that man is created in the image of God. They are just, therefore revealed, commanded, and universally binding across the canon and across extra-biblical history, history outside the Bible, sinners outside the Bible, us. The laws that were unique to Israel were tagged as positive laws. Positive laws are restricted to those whom they were delivered in the unique context in which they were given. A, a, a positive law found early in the Bible is the prohibition to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There, there might be other positive laws, by the way, in Genesis 1 and 2, but I'll let you think through that. It can be argued that the first revelation of moral law among men occurred at the creation of man, male and female, in the image of God, which we've already done. This implies that the concepts embodied in the terms moral and positive are both grounded in the creation narrative, moral based on creation, general revelation, positive upon a special act of providence, Special revelation. By the way, the revelation of the covenant of works in the catechism is found under the rubric or heading of divine creation or divine providence. How if we do it this way? True or false? In our catechism and the Westminster Standards, the revelation of the covenant of works comes under the heading of creation or providence. Uh, that isn't a good true or false. Comes under the heading of... You know, you already talked. This is my time. He always does this to me. 
I think it might be past your bedtime pretty soon. True or false? In, the, in our Reformed catechisms, the revelation of the doctrine of the covenant of works, the revelation of the covenant of works to Adam is an act of creation. According to, it's an act of providence if you read the, uh, the catechisms. And if you read the confession carefully, I think there's that distinction there, and it's of vital importance, and I'm off the notes. So there's positive law very early on in the, uh, in the canon, and subsequent positive laws are spread throughout the Old and New Testaments. With reference to Israel, those laws which were unique to her as God's old covenant nation that directed forms of worship were tagged as ceremonial laws. These laws are connected to the tabernacle, priesthood, sacrifices, temple, and the people. These laws that were... Those laws that were unique to Israel's God's old covenant nation that pertained to civil order were tagged as judicial or civil laws. Positive laws are based upon the will of God. They are good because God commands them. They are commanded, therefore just. Now the question becomes this. Are these distinctions to be found in the text of Scripture? Not the words, but the concepts. Laws based on creation and universally binding on all men in all places and all areas in all history. Laws based on redemptive purpose, some of which are temporary, uh, uh, temporary uh, redemptive purposes for a temporary period in time, in order to um, in order to bring the Messiah into the world. That's what I think ancient Israel under covenant is for. It's, a, it's, not a, it's not an eternal purpose. Well, it terminates in an eternal purpose, but Israel is not an end in and of itself. Ancient Israel is a means through which the Messiah is going to come to the world. Okay, so, so Old Testament Israel is actually Messiah-centered in types and shadows and, and allegories, but you can't handle that. It's another subject, too. Um, not allegorical interpretation, allegory as a genre. It's in the Old Testament. Okay, it's a difference. So the question is, does Scripture make these distinctions? Is the concept of some laws, both predating and transcending Israel as God's old covenant nation, to be found in the Bible? Yes, something was going on in creation that's called law written on the heart that's now universal to even for Gentiles, but also Jews as well. And then there was another distinction made where God gives a command, uh, to a prohibition. And can other laws restricted to ancient Israel's God's old covenant nation be found and distinguished? So we're not asking if the Bible uses the phrases, phrases moral law, ceremonial laws, and judicial laws. We're asking if the Bible distinguishes between types of law in the Mosaic corpus, the body of Moses' writing, and elsewhere, however it might distinguish it. We're looking for concepts and distinctions between different types of law, laws based on creation, laws based on covenant, and differing applications of law in terms of people, places, circumstances, and not words, phrases, or distinct lists. Okay, People, places, circumstances. I'm borrowing that from, I think, Mr. Franciscus Junius. And if, if I can keep... 50% of you awake by the time we get there. I'm going to read that quote. 
But if some of you don't wake up, you won't get to hear the Junius quote. Mike woke up. Thanks, brother. So let's look at, let's just consider really briefly the pre-Sinai era. Okay, so Sinai is obviously a revelation of law to ancient Israel. uh, The stone tablets and then the subsequent uh, case laws, ceremonial and judicial and all that stuff. Pre-Sinai era, there is evidence for the presence of law in some form prior to the promulgation of the Decalogue at Sinai, though the narrative does not present a law code. If moral law is based on creation, this should not surprise us, right? If the Bible doesn't have to spell out its entire doctrine of the law written on the heart for it to be true before it tells us about that doctrine. It can just be true and you can see evidence of it sprinkled here and there, the assumption that certain things are always right and always wrong, and then have the Bible later give the explicit, explicit, explicit formulation of a command, positively, or a prohibition, a negative, don't do that. Since men after the fall and before Sinai are creatures in the image of God, though fallen, the law based on creation would carry over into the lapsarian state. Uh, what is it? I need a hymn. I didn't make that up. It came from my observations of Holy Scripture, and believe it or not, it's in chapter 19. Watch what happens here. Uh, Paragraph 2 of chapter 19, the same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. That's the pre-Sinai era, after the fall into sin. So we have the lapsarian, the pre-lapsarian state of Adam or man. Then we have the lapsarian state prior to Sinai. And the confession says, whatever happened to Adam at the fall into sin didn't totally eradicate some sense of this created principle that if it's followed, because uh, it tends, it tends, it forces the soul to tend towards certain things, and if the soul draws the proper conclusion, it's, that's the law of God. He said, whatever happened at the fall and a sin, that's kind of still happening, but it's all messed up. But it's still there. The same law that was written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall, and then was delivered in a special form to ancient Israel. Since men after the fall and before Sinai are creatures, this makes sense. Uh, What we find in the narrative up to Exodus 20 is evidence that the laws that are assumed by it end up reflecting what God spoke on Sinai. By the way, the New Testament does that sometimes. Dr. Renahan showed us... um, when the writers are talking about the law quite often or commandments that are appropriate for Christians and somehow they're related to the Old Testament, quite often some of the commands of the Decalogue are Romans 2 does that, Romans 2 or 3. Romans, well, 13, Romans 13 does that. Depending on what version, it's either 5 or 6 of the 10 commandments. There's a textual variant there. Um, Interesting how when the commands or the law, which is 
the fulfillment, love is the fulfillment of the law. What commands is he talking about? He, he goes back to Sinai, grabs a few of them and says these. Now, when he does that, does he mean all of, that's all the ones that you're responsible to obey, though? That's weird, because the laws in, this, in the Decalogue itself that are promulgated, uh, that is always viewed as an entire unit by the Old Testament. And so if Jeremiah's prophecy, I will write my law on their heart, the only time that phrase, my law, is used, I'm thinking back about 25 years ago, so I could be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure the only time the exact equivalent of that is used, at least in the context of writing, goes back to guess where? The finger of God, which is a metaphor for the execution of divine power, causing things to be chiseled out, rocks to be chiseled out of stone tablets, and the ten words show up on it. So if that's taking place, and I think that's what's actually taking place, um, it's very interesting. Anyway, before Sinai, a lot of the narrative presupposes what we call the Ten Commandments. Here's what Philip Ross says, who has an excellent book called From the Finger of God. The matter of the Decalogue can be seen in pre-Mosaic biblical history. The matter okay, of the Decalogue. And I think what he means like that is the stuff of it. I think that's a bad word. He said he should have said the substance of the Decalogue can be seen in pre-Mosaic uh, biblical history. If this is so, and I think it is, then the substance of the Ten Commandments predates Sinai and must have another basis than the Mosaic Covenant alone. You see the power in the argument that says the Ten Commandments came with Moses and they go with Moses. That's pretty powerful because if it did come with Moses, I'm going to say, all right, it went with Moses because it's clear Moses as a legislator, the Mosaic Corpus as legislation for the people of God has been abrogated by virtue of fulfillment. Ancient Israel, even its, in its uh, political sense, was, in the language of, I think, Junius, an, abrogate, an, an adumbration of the kingdom of Christ. Huh. In, in its political sense, somehow, some way, there is a, a prefigurement and I think it's ultimately of the eternal state in, by ancient Israel in the land of promise. Their rest that they enjoyed in the land of promise was actually an arrow pointing to ultimate eschatological rest. Does the Bible ever look back at their rest and connect it with ultimate eschatological rest? Yes, it does in the Hebrews chapter 4. Paul in Hebrews 4 does that. We heard the voice. Come on. So some of the evidence is clear. I have all these texts. I'm assuming people want to go home. Um, I have this section here. Uh, and you can read Walter C. Kaiser toward an Old Testament ethic. Because that's where I first read it in the early 90s. I'm going, oh my. I don't even think Walter, Dr. Kaiser was a Reformed theologian, was he? Was he a dispensationalist? Kind of, yeah. He had the promise theme. That was really helpful early on in my 
pilgrimage, but I, when I read his book toward an Old Testament ethic, he had this section where he proved that between the fall into sin, or maybe the creation, and Sinai, before the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai, all th- ten of the Ten Commandments were reflected in the narrative in various ways. That was Walter Kaiser gave that to me. That also, that argument is in Philip Ross from the Finger of God. That argument is in um, that book published by God called Genesis. The author is Moses. And the book called Exodus published by God, authored by Moses up until chapter 19, 18, 19, 20. Um, God made man upright, but they all sought out many schemes. Morally upright. Schemes, seeking out schemes, isn't seeking to be in a posture otherwise than upright. Physically upright. He, he mentioned that. It can't be physically upright. God made man standing. Adam was created as a standing being. And then he sought out a scheme. In other words, he, he sought out something other than his created status. He knelt. It doesn't make sense, right? Or he, fe- he fell. There you go. That ruined death just messed it up. Could you just like, this is it. Security, Mike. It's his left knee, uh, right knee, his right knee. Um, by the way, God made man, Adam and Eve, morally upright, but they all, they and all other sense, except our Lord, have sought out many schemes, devices. We've all sinned. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that text applied to our first, to our first parents, right? You think Adam and Eve actually sinned? I think they did. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. 1 John 3 4. 1 John 3 4 didn't become true the moment John wrote it. It was true of our first parents, right? Is it all right that I take a precedent for commenting on antecedent scripture, I allow the precedent to be subsequent scripture than a a human commentary. See what I just did there? I'll use a human commentary, but I want to use the entirety of the teaching of scripture to tell me what happened when those who were created upright sought out their schemes. They sinned. They violated the law of God. How do I know that? God told me in 1 John 3, 4, in Ecclesiastes 7.29, in Romans 3.23, there's a, there's a three verses, Trinity of testimony, Trinitarian testimony there. These verses don't become true when they're written. That already happened. It's already true. It's okay, by the way. To take the word of God on the word of God. Uh, Because when you have the word of God on the word of God, you know what you have? The word of God on the word of God. That's a... We can sleep well on that one. Several texts seem to lead... uh, Hold on a second. It was first true of our first parents, 1 John 3, 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Scripture identifies people as sinners prior to Israel's covenant with Yahweh, right? There were people that were 
lawless. Sin is lawlessness. There were people who transgressed the law of God. They had it some sense, some way, some form, I think based on creation, before Israel's uh, uh, um, Yahweh's covenant with Israel. Uh, many texts indicate all that. Um, by the way, the way I put it, and I borrowed, I'm sure I borrowed this from somebody because it sounds good. All 10 of the Ten Commandments are pre-echoed prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai. You can hear them. If you, if you know what the Ten Commandments are, and then you go back and read the narrative from Genesis 1-1 through Exodus 19, whatever, you can, you can hear a pre-echo of that which is explicitly stated via, uh, on the stone tablets. Um, did you know that Adam broke all 10 of the Ten Commandments? Have you ever read, who is this? Edward Fisher's The Marrow of Modern Divinity. It's really good to read that book. It's really, really, really helpful. He, he said, you know, from James 2, if you break one, you break them all. So who's the first breaker of one? Adam. What did he break? All. The law of his creation and the positive. By breaking the positive, he broke the entirety of the Decalogue all at once. I have this list of how he did that. You can read it yourself. It's over there in Fisher. But obviously, Adam did not love God or his fellow man at his fall into sin. If the love commands, love God, love your neighbor, comprehend the commands of the Decalogue, then Adam clearly broke the entire moral law at his fall. And Eve did as well. All this taken together shows that the basic principles of the Decalogue were known before Sinai. The unique covenantal ceremonial laws and judicial laws came after the promulgation of the Decalogue upon Sinai. As Ross says, the Bible presents the laws of the Decalogue as antecedent to it. I'll stop there. The Old Testament as well as the New Testament makes very various distinctions between the Decalogue and other Mosaic laws. Some of those have already been mentioned. Um, the Decalogue is that which was written on the stone tablets by the finger of God. The Decalogue was at least once or a few times called the covenant. It, could be, it was the epitome of it. It could be identified as it, but it didn't have all the legislation of it. The Decalogue was put inside the Ark of the Covenant, and the book of the law was put, in, put, in by, put by the side. Methinks I can hear Spurgeon say, that is the type of the heart, but the law being written on, on the Well, you know what I'm talking about. The Pentateuch differentiates between the Decalogue and other Mosaic laws in various ways. Ten words written with the finger of God on stone tablets as the covenant itself, uh, as the covenant itself is put in the ark, put in the ark, not beside it, and as that which nothing else was to be added unto. Theologians call this unique function of the Decalogue under the Mosaic economy, it's uh, an apodict, it had an apodictic function, that it's, it's basic, it's essential to the whole thing, and everything else somehow, someway flows out of it, okay? Um, but there's also other distinctions the Pentateuch also distinguishes between laws in Deuteronomy 4, 5, 
6 and 12. Just listen really quick. I'm not going to read them all. Surely I have taught you statutes and ju judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. That's pretty important. Did Moses make it into the land? Did Moses write the laws for the land prior to the people of God going into the land? Did Moses write, some of the, write these laws prior to the ancient people going into the land before they went into the land and told them to obey all the laws outside the land? You got to follow that again. Did you get that? He's writing them outside the land for the land. There are some things Moses wrote that were to be done exclusively in the land, but other things Moses wrote about, like the tabernacle laws, how would they go in the land and then 40 years of wandering and do the tabernacle laws inside the land of promise? They had to do that outside the land. So some of the laws he wrote for ancient Israel were in the land only laws. Others were wilderness laws that would have died out with the first generation and be null and void by the time the second generation comes because it was conditioned upon the wilderness wanderings, the tabernacle era. Did I read the quote from somebody, Israel's traveling days or whatever he called them? Uh, Deuteronomy, that was Deuteronomy 4, 5. Deuteronomy 4, 13 and 14. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform the Ten Commandments. And he wrote that on, on, the, ten, on the tablets of stone, the Lord commanded me that at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess, 531. But as for you, this, is, this 531 is, is quoted by a lot of the old writers that I read. But as for you, stand here by me, and I will, me is the Lord, and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments. See that? Some of them make a big deal. Commandments, statutes, and judgments, which you shall teach them that they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. Deuteronomy 6.1 is another one. Deuteronomy 12.1. Notice that some laws revealed through Moses were to be observed in the land of promise, statutes and judgments and all the commandments in the statutes and the judgments. Now, somebody might say, yeah, but if that statutes and judgments and whatever the third term is, refers to the threefold division, then you're saying God told Moses they didn't have to obey the Decalogue outside the land because he gave it to him outside the land. No, they, they got to obey that one in both. Not only in the land. Puritan, prior to citing Deuteronomy 5.31, says this, the moral law is for the most part expressed by commandments, the ceremonial by statutes, and the judicial by judgments, which the Septuagint renders by entalos, he used that Greek word earlier, uh, dikaiamata and krimata. What is of interest to note as well is that the Decalogue was delivered to the people prior to entering the land and was not restricted to the land. And as noted above, the essence of the commands of the Decalogue predate its formal promulgation on Sinai, but the Decalogue is not the only part of the Mosaic law that was applicable outside the land. Tabernacle laws were. Another observation. Do I have time? It's 8.41. I have no idea what time I started. 8.05? That's when I started? So I have to like 9.30? Another observation, really quick here, maybe of interest. Some ceremonial laws were not perpetual throughout Old Covenant Israel's history. I think I've already said that. 
Listen to Franciscus Junius. Uh, the truth, true theology, is that the name of his? True theology, Reformation Heritage Books published it about, reprinted it about eight or 10 years ago. It's a heady, it's a tough sled book. I'm going through it second time with two of my deacons. First time, I'm yelling hallelujah half the time. My wife's getting mad. What are you yelling at? Where has this book been all my life? This explains some distinctions I saw in Owen, and I was going, what's he talking about? Archetypal and ectypal and theology according to God's knowledge, which is comprehensive of God, and theology according to our knowledge, a created knowledge, a revealed knowledge, a limited knowledge, a finite knowledge. Well, he wrote a book on called the Mosaic Polity. Here's what he says. Some of the ceremonial laws remain constant until the advent of Christ. That's pretty simple. As a complement to the mystery of our redemption and the promulgation of the gospel, and ultimately, for as long as the Republic of the Israelites existed, some of the ceremonial laws remained up to, to the time of the da- Babylonian deportation. You ever thought of it that way? Some remained up until the time when Solomon's temple was constructed and sanctified to the Lord. So even within the history of Israel, public worship looked different at different times. Various positive laws, various ceremonial laws were utilized at one time and then not utilized because condition changed even within the time of the Mosaic Covenant. Some remained until the time when the kingdom was established, until the time when the judges were in charge. And finally, some did not last beyond the time when the Israelites marched in their exodus from Egypt, which was 40 years, and traveled toward Canaan, which we call the time of the traveling Republic of the Israelites. That's what I was talking about right there. The time of the traveling of the uh, Republic of the Israelites. For afterwards, it was stationary as it had arrived in the promised land. See what his point is? There's like, there's even divisions and subdivisions within the subdivided subdivisions, or however you want to put that. That was all rhetorical flair for a point. In other words, you think, you think Turretin distinguishes. Junius is a hyper-distinguished, he has hyper-distinguishing-itis or something like that. But there's a reason for it. This is a... This is a huge issue. It's very complex. It's not as simple as uh, quite often thought. Anybody, anyway, I say this in a conclusion. If these are real distinctions, and I, I, I didn't go through the prophet. You can go through the prophets. By the way, if Moses makes those kind of distinctions, and Moses' product is the written word of God, and God raises up subsequent prophets, and their product is the written word of God. You think they might recognize those distinctions? The answer is yes. Wake up. That way I didn't have to look at you. Um, you think the subsequent writers would, would notice distinctions Moses, Moses make and made, and made similar distinctions? How about our Lord? Would he just start over? Because he's, you know head of the new creation? Or would he recognize distinctions in previous revelation in terms of its law? How about the, the writing apostles? Would they make distinctions? If the distinction, and see, these we don't wait until Jesus to make the distinctions. They're already there. Jesus recognized them. So 
If these are real distinctions, I think they are in the Pentateuch, and since all uh, Scripture is inspired by God, it shouldn't surprise us that subsequent revelation does that. Now, here's uh, very quickly some proposals for New Covenant theology and progressive covenantal proponents. I have three. I'm not going to go through all three. I'm going to go... I'm going to go to the third one. The third one is this. Third area for further work among New Covenant theology and progressive covenantal advocates is related to the importance of man's created status and the covenant God imposed upon Adam and how these relate to our Lord. So I'm saying if you get the garden wrong, you get the first Adam wrong, you're going to get the last Adam wrong, and that's my challenge here. Let me see if I can tease this out. This is of vital importance. In their discussions about the law of God, and especially Wellams on the threefold division, I find them sometimes using old technical terms and phrases, but importing meanings into them the older writers did not intend. This makes discussion among us a more difficult task. For example, recall that Wellam claims ceremonial laws were moral laws. And remember Wellam cites Moo approvingly, saying, Our source for determining God's eternal moral law is Christ and the apostles. So my question is, so no one could know what God's eternal moral law was until Christ and the apostles? These men are not using the word moral the way Reformed theologians traditionally have. This is similar to New Covenant theology advocate Tom Wells. Wells bases moral law on the, this is a quote, on the progressive nature of special revelation. Since God reveals his character progressively in the Bible, moral law is revealed progressively. In other words, he argues for a dynamic concept of moral law. Indeed, he even claims that we will not know the moral law until the eternal state. By the way, that's quoting, I'm quoting myself there. I didn't realize that until I was reading it. And yet Wells says, whatever is moral binds all men at all times. I just don't get that. If we can't and won't know the moral law until the eternal state, how can it bind anyone until then? It seems like in the Bible, when people are found guilty, at least for some of them, uh, excuse me, when people are found guilty, there's a standard of judgment that they're held accountable to because they didn't know it or knew it and suppressed it. Also, Wellam claims covenant theology makes the threefold division the principle by which, he says that in italics, by which moral law is established across the canon. I think this is, in fact, not the case. The more basic distinction between natural or moral and positive laws would be a good place for them to start. In other words, the garden, before the garden and in the garden. This would confront them with the created status of Adam and Eve and the covenant imposed upon Adam, which are revelational grounds for the moral positive distinction. We already read the confession, so I'll just keep going. The dynamic view of moral law ends up producing various difficulties. This has detrimental implications for the identity of the law written on the heart, natural law, issues related to the covenant of works, the perpetuity and universality of moral law, the Bible's indictment upon all men, Jews and Greeks, possessors of the Bible or not, as sinners, transgressors of God's law, the Sabbath, the act of obedience of Christ, and the imputation of righteousness. All that stuff is connected to your view of the law. Romans 3.19 is one Pauline text that speaks to this issue. Now, We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. There must be some sense in which unbelieving Gentiles without the Bible are under the law 
in order to be found guilty of it. I don't think that means Gentiles will be found guilty on the last day for violating the Old Covenant's law, at least not in its entirety, nor as it was distinctly for Israel under its ancient covenant. We must have a place as well for Galatians 3.13 in our theology. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Our confession grounds the natural and moral law in creation, and rightly so. This makes it universal since we are all creatures made like Adam. Speaking of Adam, our Lord's apostle said, In Adam, all die, in 1 Corinthians 15.22, and then because all sinned, in Romans 5.12. Getting the identity and vocation of the first Adam right will greatly assist one in getting the identity and vocation of the last Adam right. We need a God-appointed head. We're Federalists, covenant theologians here. We need a God-appointed head who can do what the first Adam failed to do, not sin, and bring many sons to glory, and who can undo the catastrophic results of his fall. We need a God-appointed head who can provide for our lack of righteousness and take care of our horrible guilt problem. I have good news for you. It's God's news for you. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, he assumed our nature, born under the law, he assumed our duties, to redeem those who were under the law, he assumed our liabilities that we might receive the adoption as sons. So I'm saying this. A robust two-Adam theology requires the active and passive obedience of our Lord for us and for our salvation. Jesus didn't obey all the commands in the Old Testament for elect ancient Jews and obey all the commands in the New Testament on behalf of elect Gentiles. Dynamic view of moral law. He did obey both moral and positive laws for elect ancient Jews and Greeks. Confessing the threefold division of the law helps us understand the mechanics of our Lord's vicarious obedience for all his elect of all ages. I'm done. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this full day. And I know it's a lot of information and came out fast. But you're able to take a mess and unscramble it and help it to profit the hearers. This is what we want for all the lectures, and we thank you for this day in Jesus' name. Amen.